Well, hello there, and good morning, and welcome to another edition of Livestream Sunday School. Uh, Livestream Sunday School for Akron Alliance Fellowship Church in Akron, Ohio. And for anyone else who is looking for a Sunday School class to join us, amen. Um, thank you for being here. Today is Sunday, May 29th. We're going to go ahead and get started with music to allow people to jump on with us, and we appreciate you being here on this Memorial Day weekend. Uh, glad to have you. It's going to be the uh, Community Praise Church Praise Team. Uh, you Are Good is the name of the song, and we're going to go ahead and play that while we allow other people to jump, join on, uh, jump on and join us. Amen. Thank you for being here, Deneen. Good morning. And Arlen, good morning. Amen. I love their production team. Cindy, good morning. Good morning, welcome. Live stream Sunday school. Back in action. Brother Nate, good morning. Nate and Marnell, good morning, good morning. Ronnie, good morning. Clorinda, good morning. For those of you who drink coffee, I hope it's nice and hot and fresh and delicious. After all, we are waking up now. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Great day to worship and praise the Lord. Amen. Thank you for being here. Amen. Hey, Arella, Roscoe, good morning. Charles and Joanna, good morning. Everybody's getting on early this week. Jasper, good morning. Amen, amen. Amen. He is worthy of our praise. Amen. this morning about prayer, believe it or not, and it was one of those things where we were not sure if God's going to answer our prayer, but whether he answers it in the manner that we look to him to answer it, he is still a good God. He still has your best interest at heart, and understand that sometimes his, the way he acts through prayer and responding, he does affirm us, but he also wants us to recognize that he is a good God, and that he doesn't, in fact, have concern over our very souls which is the most important thing. Amen. Good morning, Larry and Ann. Thanks for being here this morning. Amen. Amen. 
being pulled from a psalm, isn't it? Mercy endureth forever. Sounds like it. I could probably look it up and find it. Amen. Amen. He is worthy of our praise. Arlen, if you can hear this, you know, we got to get a budget together to have a production team like uh, Community Praise Church has. <laughs> they got a bunch of cameras. <laughs> Maybe it's just two cameras going back and forth and just pivoting across the crowd or something. I don't know. Amen. the community praise church uh you are good uh yeah, darling <laughs> i know he's got a sense of humor right um amen hey you know listen it, 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 with god all things are possible amen i would just leave it there i think that's the best way to put it um we appreciate all of you being here this morning thank you again we have been doing sunday school now um for two years, uh, pretty much online, uh, a little bit over two years, and it's been such a blessing to be able to still present the Word and do so uh, in this manner. And just based upon the fact that we have been doing productions online, we're going to keep doing them online, whether we're doing Sunday school from here or doing Sunday school from the from the church, uh, when that day comes, we're we're getting closer. We don't know exactly when that is, but we'll, we'll see where we are, and we'll just uh, take it one step at a time. But either way, we'll do the best we can to make sure that you are uh, kept fed with the Word. I can't stress enough how important it is to do that. Uh, a brief comment, and I'm, it just came to mind. I want to make sure that everybody understands how important it is for us to stay in prayer. A lot of people, in reaction to all the, 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 the mass shootings, whether it be in Buffalo or in Texas, uh, some people have given the response that, you know, prayers are not enough. Well, or there's no reason to pray anymore uh, because of what's happening. And I, I challenge anyone and everyone to say those are the very reasons we should be praying. <laughs> we, you don't stop praying in spite of what's happening. We don't like what's happening. We recognize that what happens, something like this happening, is the result of evil in our world. We are living in a fallen world, and we live in a place where we recognize that there are people who truly need uh, the Lord and truly need, uh, frankly, to be dealt with. And prayer is the most powerful weapon that we have. We don't ever want to deny the power of prayer or put prayer aside because that means the enemy <clears throat> is winning when you do that. It's basically making a, uh, a statement that you don't really think that God is important or God is not involved in this situation. God is fully aware of what's happening. We live in a fallen world. It's never changed. It's always been that way ever since the fall of uh, Adam and Eve. And we have to recognize that for what it really is, truly is worth. We as believers must be in prayer uh, continually. And we are going to continue to emphasize that. And we want to make sure that you hear that and understand that. Lisa, good morning. Debbie, good morning. Uh, thanks for being here today. 
we are going to make a couple of announcements here as we uh, move forward with Sunday school. First of all, Pastor Gus will be bringing the message today at church in Akron, and he has a message prepared that will be available here online on the Akron Alliance Fellowship Facebook page immediately following Sunday school. It will be uh, there waiting for you <laughs> for those who are not coming to Akron, and it is uh, a continuation of Pastor Gus's messages on the rapture and the end times. Um, the title of the message is The Mark, The Judgment Seat, and The Marriage of the Lamb. It's a long title, uh, but that's the title of his message, and it is for forthcoming here on the Akron Alliance Fellowship Facebook page right after Sunday school closes down. And we will. he also will be bringing that message in Akron uh, at the church uh, later today after 11 o'clock. So we welcome you for being there. I'll see you guys down there. Uh, hold a space for me and Lynn when we get down there, and uh, we appreciate that. Um, please remember the tithes and offerings as well, too. We don't want to forget that. That's very important. We appreciate everyone who is making the contribution to help keep the church running and operating normally, and we do want to make sure that we're taking care of the, the essentials at church. So we appreciate you remembering the church with uh, a, a gift offering, tithes and offerings. We, uh, If you're mailing them, please mail them to Akron Alliance Fellowship, 688 688 Diagonal Road, Akron, Ohio, 44320. We appreciate your remembering that as well, too. And we just thank you again for your participation. Good morning, Liz and Vic. Uh, good morning, Tammy. Thank you for being here. We have a lot of people jumping on today. This is, um, I guess, uh, you would think Memorial Day would be a, a day where people would be out and taking off, but I guess it's early enough, right? We can do Sunday school from anywhere, amen? <laughs> and we have. So we appreciate you joining us and being with us online. Um, and we thank you very much for recognizing the importance of getting into God's Word. That's what this is all about. That's what Sunday school is all about. And we're going to be talking about canonicity today. This is a new subject uh, that we're going to be uh, broaching in the discussion of biblical inerrancy. The importance of recognizing Scripture as being extremely important in our lives is something that we, we should never take for granted. We always want to make sure that we're giving Scripture its due and making sure that we're recognizing that it does come directly from God. So we're going to go ahead and get busy and get started with Sunday School. Canonicity is the subject, and we appreciate you all being here with us. And let's do this. Let's make sure that we keep our Bibles and electronic devices handy because we're going to need those uh, for a little bit today. And uh, <laughs> it won't be too many. I won't. And my, my lovely bride is uh, doing like this, you know, getting ready, flexing, making sure that she can <laughs> type the information. I promise I'm not going to do that. Do, it's not going to be too intense, a little, a little bit here and there. So mm -hmm. with that in mind, we're going to go ahead and get started. And uh, we appreciate your interaction, by the way, too, online. If you have questions about something that we can try to answer, we can do that. And if you have questions afterward that come to mind, you can leave questions within the comments, and we will try to pull those out um, and extract those later on, too. I, I go back over it, and I, I can try to pull those. It's just with a Y that I could see. Okay, everyone, well, let's get busy here and get into the Word and also uh, uh, pray that the Holy Spirit does all the speaking and it provides all the wisdom and knowledge to us as we go forward. It's a great topic of biblical inerrancy. We appreciate you being here. 
Father, we just thank you for your presence and your, your loving kindness, Lord. We indeed want to worship and praise you because you are good and your mercy endures forever. And Lord, when we say forever, we mean because you are an eternal God and you mean the best for us. And we know that we can trust you with our very lives, our very eternity. We thank you for your presence today, Lord. We thank you for how you have given us wisdom and knowledge through the power of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying power of the Spirit. Bless us and keep us, Lord, as we move forward and as we learn more about what you have to say to us through your word. And we give you all praise and the glory in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, everybody, turn your Bibles and electronic devices to Second Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 19 through 21. Second Peter verse, chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. I want to cover this specifically as we get into the topic of canonicity. And I'll explain what canonicity is, so we don't, uh, that won't be lost on you. Of course, just to make sure that I'm giving credit to where I source my materials from, um, How We Got the Bible by Sid Litke is uh, one of the sources, and also Bill McRae, who did a study on canonicity as well, too. Uh, he is indeed, uh, I'll be pulling some information from him on this particular subject, but uh, it's very fascinating about looking at the, the history of how Scripture was laid out and put together for us to the text that we look at here. But let's look at Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. This is the English Standard Version. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul is giving us a very, or pardon me, Peter, excuse me, Peter, so used to saying Paul, it's not uh, appropriate. Um, Peter is the one who is affirming that these scriptures do indeed mean something. The scriptures that we look at in the entire Bible are were written by the Old Testament prophets and also by those who came, uh, the disciples who followed Jesus. Uh, he's recognizing and mentioning here that all scripture is indeed God-breathed. This is something that was the spoken word and it was conveyed and carried along by the Spirit and conveyed to those individuals who were the ones who were doing the writing, the texts, the scribes, the information uh, was relayed from those who were inspired by the Spirit and writing down the, the true word. And so this is what we have to go by, and this is what we're going to go by. Um, and we want to keep making sure that we recognize that this scripture, you have to understand something about biblical inerrancy in this topic. When, when Peter wrote this, He's recognizing even then that there were people who were false prophets and false teachers. So how long has been the struggle for biblical inerrancy? Uh, pretty much for as long as Christ uh, showed up and did what he did on the cross for us. And we had those false teachers all in the midst right afterward when Satan tried to do everything he could to try to take away the power of Jesus Christ and confuse people. 
uh, from following Jesus. It's kind of been going on since before that. Think of the Pharisees. Oh, it's, it's oh, that's you know what? That's true too. It has been going on since the Pharisees. The Pharisees, even before Jesus came about, they created all these man-made laws that were indeed very, very difficult uh, for people to follow. But but they made it in such a manner where if you didn't follow them, uh, you would just be uh, what you you would be basically ostracized, or you wouldn't be allowed to participate in, in different areas in society. Here's the thing. That's why Jesus got so angry with the Pharisees, because they were literally taking what is a free uh, religion and now coming back to the place where they indeed uh, making it more and more burdensome. That's why we say in, in, in John 8, 36, when Jesus Christ is free, he, when, when uh, Jesus is free indeed, when we follow Jesus, uh, it's a freedom in worship. Uh, he lightens the burdens for us. That's why he tells us this. Let's look, let's look at canonicity once again. Uh, one more time, excuse me. The word canonicity. And so the question I'm asking is, how do we know that the 66 books in the Bible are indeed the only inspired books? And who decided which books were truly inspired by God? Now, the Roman Catholic Bible includes books that are not found in other Bibles called the Apocrypha. And by the way, there are other modern translations that have come out afterward, uh, even later than that, that has still include the Apocrypha within the Bible. So, and we'll look at what that Apocrypha means and all that too. How do we know that we as Protestants have the right books? Uh, these questions are addressed by a study of canonicity. Canonicity, or the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, not a canon that shoots, but the canon with an N, K-C-A-N-O-N. <laughs> well, I have to do that. I'm, you know, because we want to make sure that we're not taking words and mixing them up. Yes. Not the canon that goes boom, but C A N O N. <laughs> canon is a word that comes from Greek and Hebrew words. I told you just wait a little while. You, did, yeah. you thought I was so serious, and I yeah. that just changed very quickly. Uh, it comes. Canon is a word that comes from Greek and Hebrew words that literally means a measuring rod. A measuring rod. Um, we, we've heard the, the terminology of plumb line in scripture as well too, but this is a measuring rod, um, like you would have a yardstick, like you would have something of that nature too. Uh, good morning, Greg. I saw you just pop on. God bless you, brother. Canonicity describes the standard. It's a standard that the, uh, books had to meet to be recognized as scripture. So those who made the decisions, and you have to understand that these are God-ordained decision makers, by the way, the people who were put forth to make decisions about scripture we want to recognize that too um okay so i don't know what was funny there but i'm just going to go ahead and move on <laughs> so on the one hand deciding which books were inspired seems like a human process but it was okay but <laughs> well you know whatever that's fine um I will keep my day job. Thank you very much. So let's um, let's move on. <laughs> now, it seemed like a human process, but we have to understand that Christians uh, that were gathered together at the church councils in the first several centuries A.D., they were there for the purpose of officially recognizing which books were inspired. Why? Because a lot of books had been written. There have been a lot of people who were involved in writing books, and we want to make sure that... Um, they wanted to make sure that whatever was put forth as the final 
word in scripture was the authentic word that God had indeed inspired. These consuls did not always determine which books were inspired. They simply, simply recognized what God had already determined. That's also important for us to remember, too. God had made the determination that these books were inspired. So, um, so the study here is going to discuss the tests of canonicity that were used, the history of canonization, and a brief explanation of why certain disputed books are not scripture. And, and again, just as a reminder, there's a lot of teachers out there that tried to put forth material in such a way for them to either get attention or make sure that people paid attention to what they were doing. A lot of writers back then that were doing that. So we want to make sure that we're clarifying what canonicity is. It is a, the measuring rod was being put forth to make sure that what we read today in Scripture, the Bible that we read, the 66 books, are indeed what God had provided for us to reflect his wisdom and his communication with his people. Amen. That's what it's all about. So the 66 books were properly recognized by the early church as the complete authoritative scriptures not to be added or subtracted from. And we know about that because we know at the end of Revelation, the book of Revelation, we want to make sure that everything that we, we read and study, there's not to be an additions or subtractions from that word it has to be authentic because god is the one who provided the information so let's look at the tests of canonicity the early church councils and a church council merely is just a gathering of people a gathering of people from different uh churches different backgrounds different places and they were deemed the ones who were authority the authority to look to when it came to making sure that scripture was indeed being um tested and proved, proven as being reliable here. They applied several basic standards in recognizing whether a book was inspired. Number one, was it authoritative? Is the book authoritative? Um, in other words, is it fair to say, thus saith the Lord, is whatever was being conveyed within those books that were being looked at? The second item is, is it prophetic? Is it coming from a man of God? That's where the passage of Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 was talking about. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's coming directly from the Lord. It's imparted through the Spirit. It's imparted through wisdom through the Spirit to the individual and conveyed that way. A book in the Bible must have the authority of a spiritual leader of Israel, whether it be in the Old Testament as in a prophet, a king, a judge, or a scribe, or an apostle of the church. As in the New Testament, that was a, another plumb line. That was another guiding line for those. It must be based on the testimony of an original apostle. That's why we see Peter, John, Matthew, uh, Luke. Uh, these are all people who, not well, Luke was a writer, a scribe that was conveyed the information as well, too. So I want to make sure I have that correctly. But he's gathering information from everywhere else. But ultimately, they were the authorities that were able to convey this information. Um the next point, the third point, is it authentic? Is it consistent with other revelations of truth? Is it consistent? Is it authentic? Uh, is it dynamic? Does it demonstrate God's life-changing power? Take a look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, everybody. Hebrews 4, verse 12. Here's a passage that you know very well. 
Hebrews 4, verse 12. Uh, Also from the English Standard Version. And understand something about what the power of God shows us through his word. He's showing us the power that he has, but he's also showing the power that that word has for us and the way we live our lives. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Wow, those are just more than just written words printed words on paper amen i mean that's just awesome it's not just a collection of words it's an actual vehicle for communicating ideas it's living it's life-changing it's dynamic as it works in us and what about this knife you know incisiveness of a surgeon's knife it cuts it cuts where it needs to it it affects us it 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 has a, a power over us our hearts are changed our hearts and minds are changed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh because of the power of the word. Amen? That's what the word is supposed to do. And these people who the early church councils are looking at the dynamic power of God's word. Was it, in fact, life-changing, life-altering, impactful? That's the thing that we need to recognize here. That's what our the word does. And does it not do those very things for us? as the Spirit speaks through us or to us uh, about what we recognize when we read it and how God gives us. Amazingly, we'll read a passage several times and it takes a moment for us to realize what it really represents, but it'll be that tenth time or whatever that time is when we read a passage and God speaks to us through the Spirit. It was the perfect time for us to learn a lesson or, or teaching that God wanted us to understand and understand in such a way where we would really appreciate it And God knows all of those things about us. It's an amazing thing that he does. Another point that the early church councils looked at was that was it received and accepted and used by believers? Was the word actually doing that? Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And let's look at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. I love the Thessalonians. Uh, reading the Thessalonian books, First and Second Thessalonians, I, you might want to use that as a homework assignment and go back and look at those passages because the, Thessal- the Thessalonians, the, those, those churches were very, very zealous for the Lord and really did have a high expectation of his presence and his teaching and the Thessalonians helped dealt with a lot of persecution from the surrounding uh, within the Roman Empire where they were. They were highly persecuted, and yet they still endured all of that and still gave praise and were and had reminders because of uh, how God was speaking to them. They they had a very very special revelation about how God would indeed uh, return one day and. So they were really, truly blessed. So I think it's worth your time reading uh, the Thessalonian books for that reason. But where it says here in verse 13, so not to get not get to, uh, sidetracked here. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so it was accepted and used by the believers. And so the Thessalonians are an example of that, where they truly believed the word and knew 
that it was God speaking to them and therefore lived in such a manner where they honored God with their actions. And that uh, information uh, comes from Norman Geisler and William Nix, which was a general introduction to the Bible from their texts. So that's a very important for us to, for us to see about the how this canonicity took place. It was tested out, and they had these different areas that they looked at. Is it authoritative? Is it prophetic? Is it authentic? Is it dynamic? And is it received and accepted by believers, which is pretty important. I'm going to trust anybody who accepted Jesus Christ uh, as their personal Savior has a general foundational understanding of what God's Word is. Now, is there still more to learn? Absolutely. Is there still more growth to take place? Absolutely. That's what the Spirit's going to do for you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you indeed believe that the word that you've read is authentic and it is worth paying attention to. Okay, the history of canonization. The Old Testament canon, recognizing the correct Old Testament books. Um, and Christ refers to Old Testament books as scripture, which is something we want to see here. It is part of it. Um, I just want to take a quick peek at something to make sure that it's worth referring to right now. Um, yeah, Matthew 21, verse 42. Turn to that real quick. Matthew 21, verse 42. And Jesus has other examples of this as well that he gives in his communication um, to the people and and even uh, and in other areas as well too. But look what it says in Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said to them, Have you ne never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become, become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so he's referring to what? Old Testament scripture. He's actually referring to the Old Testament books as scripture. So we need to recognize that for what it is. Jesus is pointing back to the word. He does that often in his communication with the people. He refers to scripture from the Old Testament as a way of making a point uh, for that moment in, in time based upon whatever the communication was. Now, the Council of Jamnia, J-A-M-N-I-A, Jamnia, which was approximately A.D. 90, and notice how this is following almost right with the church fathers discussion that we had over the past three weeks or so, that um, they officially recognized our 39 Old Testament books in approximately A.D. 90. Now, I have more to add on that. They recognized it after some discussion and after some communication. And Josephus, the Jewish historian in AD 95, indicated that the 39 books were recognized as authoritative. Now, interesting thing about Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, but you know, it's one of those things where he had to acknowledge that these were the true words of God that were being conveyed. Now, I pulled some information from, this is the interesting part of this class, and I, I hope that you're still awake and with me here. Uh, but Bill McRae, uh, who is another scholar who also reviewed this more closely, he mentioned in his particular study on canonicity, it was an audio study that he did, um, 34 of those books of the 39 were initially agreed upon. Um, I'm not going to give you the terms that he used uh, because it's it's too long. It, I just I just accept the fact that 34 of them were agreed upon. That's what it essentially was taking place. They were acknowledged as agreed upon right there, and there was a, never a dispute as to 34 of these 39 books. 
Now, what he added here was very interesting here. There was a discussion prior to the Council of Jamnia taking place that five of these books within the Old Testament were first disputed, and it would, they were disputed much later. It was something that took place later on uh, as well, too. That was the first mention of the dispute around 600 A.D., which was really interesting that it took so long. But it's not hard to understand why it would happen 600 years later because the last of these books that were mentioned were written around 5 AD but it took almost 600 years for people to dispute some of these books as being authentic or genuine and understand something what did I say at the top of this a lot of people were trying to find a lot of reasons to tear down or show that there was a lack of authenticity of scripture and remember, we have the Apocrypha, which we haven't even gotten to yet. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So let's take a look at, just for fun, the five books that were disputed against, just to give you greater color and understanding what was going on here. One of those books was Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's very interesting that uh, Ecclesiastes was called into question. This is you know, Solomon's writing. Because it was called into question because in Ecclesiastes, if you read the first 11 chapters of it, Solomon kind of goes through this thing uh, where he's talking about suggesting based upon the way life was that there was no life after death. But if you look at it from the proper perspective of what Solomon was trying to communicate in the first 11 chapters, he was looking at that point of view from the natural man. The natural man has no concept beyond the life here on earth. Remember, Stephen Hawking was one of the very people who used to say publicly that there is no existence after death. There is no life after death. You just cease to exist. That's what he truly believed. So he was taking that perspective from the, pers uh, the perspective of the natural man. Only on the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes is there a view of meeting the Lord. That's what we have to see and look at when we look at Ecclesiastes. So all that Solomon was doing, he was laying out in those first 11 chapters that life is just a, an exercise in futility. If you approach it from what? Living according to the way that the natural man sees life. But it's when the chapter 12, when you see that God is indeed what's, what truly matters here. And he says it right at the end of it, uh, in, in, um, it's in Ecclesiastes 12:13. Uh, let me go to that. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 12:13. I didn't plan to do that, but let's go. I'm pretty sure that's where it is. Yep. Because that's what we want to see here. Um, Ecclesiastes 12:13. This is also the English Standard Version. The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. He is putting it right there in our laps. He's telling us what our responsibility is. We need to make sure that we're fearing the Lord. We're having reverence for him. We're having respect for him. And we're being obedient to him. That's the most important thing that we can do. And that's why we want to make sure that when the Bible is put forth, when, when God is just amazing how he puts things and lays out arguments and shows us things. But he not, wants us at the end of the day to come to the biblical perspective the perspective the eternal perspective not the human perspective i think i mentioned something at the beginning here i did mention something at the beginning of this sunday school lesson about prayer uh, denying the importance of prayer is a human perspective 
Amen. A biblical perspective, a, an eternal perspective is recognizing that God is indeed in control of everything and recognizes everything. And we need to always make sure that prayer is our most important aspect of knowing that in spite of what's happening in the world today, that we are absolutely in communication with the Lord to give us peace, to help us through those moments of grief, to help us through those moments where we don't understand what's going on. God is indeed in control, and we need to make sure that we rely upon that in our way of life. Another book that was spoken against uh, was Esther. And Esther, uh, you can kind of understand why from the standpoint that there was no mention of God. But what we have to look at here uh, is that at that time and during that era, God had withdrawn himself from the nation of Israel because of Israel's refusal to acknowledge who he was. And so God was silent, absent for what it's worth. But you've got to also look at this too. What you're going to find in Esther is that the praying remnant, the people who were recognizing God, because there were people that recognized God. One of them was Esther and one of them was Mordecai, of course, who that paved the way for the Israelites to experience great victory over those who wanted to persecute them, destroy them. And, of course, we, in reading Esther, we know that the celebration of Purim, Purim took place. That was the beginning of the discussion of Purim, which was a celebration. Jewish. It was a Jewish celebration, yes, absolutely. So you can't deny the fact that you know it was the power of Esther recognizing the power of God and, and doing these things and giving the people great victory. That's what, indeed what was being experienced here. Um, another book, I want to keep moving here because of time, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon was another book. Now, that one there, when we first read Sol Song of Solomon, the Songs of Songs, whatever we want to call it, we thought, whew, this is a pretty, um, pretty heavy-duty book. And, and some of us may have come out and said, boy, it's kind of raunchy, too. Um, now, you've got to read this carefully and look at it for what it truly is. First of all, we, we automatically make an assumption there was low morality uh, that had taken place between Solomon and his wife slash girlfriend, whoever it was, because we don't really know who that person was. But if we look at the proper perspective of sexuality, it is presented as beautiful. And it's all about your mindset, isn't it? You can say that um, sexuality is indeed beautiful, especially in the marriage situation, right? Uh, between a man and a woman. And that's exactly what this relationship was. It was a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman and the appreciation of the other person. Uh, so in that perspective, we recognize that, yes, there was a lot of uh, interesting language, but it's all about how you look at it, isn't it? Um, I think it's important for us to understand that it's about your mindset. You can look at Song of Solomon in a way that recognizes that this is God talking about the beauty of sexuality and also talking about the beauty of uh, appreciating the other person when you're married to them. And, and those are things that we need to see and recognize there. Another book is Ezekiel. I thought this was a really interesting one, too. Ezekiel, it was disputed because of the dimensions of the temple <laughs> that were given in Ezekiel were not matching the dimensions in the temple rebuilt when the Israelites returned to build it uh, after King Cyrus made the decree. Well, here's an issue here that you need to recognize, too. It was found that Ezekiel's dimensions were actually those of the temple in the millennial period. So he was giving 
a prophetic message of what the temple was going to look like in the millennial period. And and so that's why they had to go back and say, well, I guess it is authentic. <laughs> so they had to come back and, and, and say, well, it's, it looks like it, it belongs where it is. And the last one is the book of Proverbs. And, and, and the thing about this one was that it really wasn't clear why the book of Proverbs was um, thought to not be authentic. It, they thought there were some contradictions between some of the Proverbs that are hidden. I, I don't know. that. I, there's really no good explanation. And, and Bill McRae basically said the same thing. There was not really a good explanation. But yet those books were all accepted and they all were... Uh, thought to be the proper books of scripture uh, to recognize from the Old Testament. So all 39 books ultimately were recognized. Now we have just enough time to cover uh, the New Testament canon, and we want to recognize that for what it truly is, um, the correct New Testament books. So the apostles claimed authority for their writings, and that's what they did. And let's take a look real quick at um, Colossians 3.16. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. And so what's being said here is that these New Testament writings were the words of Jesus Christ. They were indeed the words that were being recognized. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So they're recognizing the authority of Scripture uh, by looking at... There's authority for the writings. And there are other passages, too. Um, let me go to Second Thessalonians 3.14, just for the sake of time. Second Thessalonians 3.14. Second <laughs> Thessalonians 3.14. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. I would hope to be not counted as to be ashamed uh, because I didn't believe what the word says. But ultimately, that's what it really comes down to. And there's an understanding there, too, that if you have a, a, a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you need to be all over this Bible and reading it and looking at it for the standpoint that God is trying to communicate with you. And it's important for us to see that, too. Uh, the next thing about the New Testament canon, the apostles' writings were equated with Old Testament scriptures. And that's in Second Peter 3, verses 1 and 2, and verses 15 and 16. Don't have time to cover those. But, but those are, they were equated as being uh, equally as important and as powerful as the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus referred to. And finally, the Council of Athanasius, Athanasius in AD 367, and the Council of Carthage in A.D. 397 recognized the 27 books in our New Testament today as inspired. So notice the time frame here. It wasn't that much longer after Christ um, left the earth, ascended, when these books were officially recognized as authentic. And it's good that it happened as quickly as it did because as time goes by, as you can see in A.D. 600, there was an issue where people were questioning things. And that, that comes more down to people trying to, um, I, I really, I, I look at it as human behavior. People, over time, human behavior, you try to, you have doubt that creeps in, you, you have questions about things, what you're reading. 
you know, the style of writing, for example, in Ecclesiastes is much different than the style of writing in other Old Testament passages. The style of writing in Proverbs is a lot different, too. Um, it's, it's more poetry. The Song of Solomon is way more different. So you have to understand that there, I think it had to do more with the way these things were being presented more than anything else. And the fact that Esther had no mention of God within the passages does not mean that God was not present. It doesn't mean that God wasn't there. And we have to come back to that and look at what came out of all of that. And so we have to look at it from the standpoint that God is showing us that he indeed is going to recognize the remnant of people who recognize him. And we as a people need to recognize that too. You better believe that every church that professes to be a a, a church that follows Christ is not always doing that or not doing that. It's indeed a remnant of people who are going to be the ones who are recognized by the Lord. And we have to recognize that the most important thing for us to do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is to stay in the word, rely upon the word, let that word cut like a knife and convict individuals of where they are in their faith and recognizing that Jesus Christ is indeed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, we are just so thankful for your presence and we thank you for your teaching today. And Lord, as we continue in this study of biblical inerrancy and canonicity, that Lord, we may see your hand in how you put forth the individuals necessary to make those decisions to stand behind your word and stand on your word. You knew that all this was taking place. You also knew about the people who were false teachers that would come forth and try to uh, take this situation and make it confusing to where it would look unreliable, that indeed you were not speaking at all. But Lord, we thank you that you stood behind your word. And Lord, you stand behind your word today before us. We recognize it for what it truly is. It's a blessing to us. It's what we really need uh, at moments when we really are confused about what's happening. We just want to go back to you and rely upon your word and pray and seek your wisdom and understanding. We thank you for your teachings. We thank you for affirming us with your word. And Lord, we thank you for the truth and nothing but the truth as you put it forth to us. We give you praise and thanks in all these things. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to stop here for Sunday school, and we're going to pick up next time with a continuation in canonicity, part two, where we'll be talking more about uh, things like the Apocrypha, the things that we were mentioning. And they are books that were written, um, that were written, and they were good books. There was nothing wrong with them, but we want to make sure that we understand that there's a difference between books that are written and inspired by man recording of history, for example, and those indeed inspired by God. We have to make that distinction. Amen. You guys take care of yourselves. We appreciate you being here, and we will see you next time.